Thank you for this opportunity to open your word again tonight. We pray that you would be personal with us, quicken us, speak to us, and use these classes and times in our life, in our relationship with you, to stir up a vision in our hearts for people, for the lost, for evangelism, for the, uh, your work in the church and in the church age. And we pray that this would spill over into the church, that you would uh, use this class for our church's sake, for, for the work that you're doing here in Peacehaven. And, and um, just hide truths in our hearts, give us an understanding, and uh, we trust you for that. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, Acts chapter 6. And in this chapter we see the beginning of some purposed organization in the church. We know that the church is an organism. In fact, the only real spiritual organism on the earth. It's the church where we share the same life through the Spirit of God that indwells each believer. Uh, But the church, as well as being an organism, also needs organization. Um, And some people have extreme views on one. It's so organized that it quenches the life and the leading of God, or it's so organic and free that it's a little bit chaotic. That was a little bit of the problem with the Church of Corinth. They were a very gifted church and a blessed church in many ways, but but Paul wrote to them and said, in chapter 14, what you're doing in the services is not in order, and everything that God does is decently and in order, etc. So the church is a living organism where the Spirit of God uh, should be free to um, flow and lead, but also there, there is an organization that's needed. And really the organization should complement or follow what the Spirit of God is doing in the church. And the leaders, of course, need to be careful and discerning that any type of structure or form or organization, does the church, the life of the church doesn't suffer because of that, but it should complement the life that's happening. So there's a situation that happens in chapter 6 um, uh, that, that brings this to, to the forefront, brings this, uh, uh, this need for organization. We know that church life is, is happening. Uh, chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came, the birth of the church. Remember how chapter 2 ends where it says that they are uh, meeting together daily, listening to the apostles' doctrine, uh, breaking of bread house to house. Many are being added to the church. We see that again in chapter 3. Um, uh, we see the number of 3,000 and, and then another 5,000 that are added. The church is growing. Uh, we remember in Acts chapter uh, um, 5, actually the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5, that there are certain ones who are bringing monies to meet the needs of those who, who uh, perhaps um, came to Jerusalem for the feasts or, or decided to stay. So there's money collections that are being, t- offerings that are being made. Um, and uh, that needs to be organized and distributed. Um, they had some organization, but this really called for for a little bit more of a focus. Uh, if we outline this chapter, we'll see... Oh, I'm sorry. 
If we were going to outline this chapter, I have the wrong one on the slide, but just quickly. So it starts with the murmuring or the complaint that is brought. Um, it gets to the, finally gets to the apostles that some of the uh, Grecians or Hellenists, we'll explain what that is in a minute, are complaining that maybe the, the Hebrews are not being so fair as people are bringing the money to the apostles and it's being distributed and the, the Grecian widows feel that maybe they're being, they're getting the short, they're being left short. They're not, they're not being given as much. So that, that's a question. And the apostles' response is to choose seven men um, uh, who will be able to help with that particular ministry. And this chapter ends with Stephen, who is one of the seven who's introduced to us and his amazing ministry and testimony. So let's jump in here with verse 1. It says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So again, we remember at the end of chapter 5, they were meeting daily in the temple. They were told to stop speaking in his name, remember, by the Sanhedrin. And what did they do? And they went back. Continue. It says they did not stop from talking in his name. Um, they, they were teaching, going to every house, preaching Jesus as the Christ. And, um, and when that's, where that's happening, where there is good teaching and preaching, um, you are going to see disciples. And that's what's happening in the church. With the church growth, um, there's disciples, the church is growing, and this complaint arises or murmuring. And uh, when that happens, it's always good to really have an ear for it, to not be defensive or question it, but just to, to hear it, because there's probably legitimacy in there. And uh, we, we're aware of spiritual warfare. The devil would love to get in and bring division in the church over the smallest little things. And it's important for in the church, particularly with the leaders and the elders or deacons or whatever, to be sensitive and aware on how to respond to that. So... This particular problem, as we know, is coming because of the church growth. So they're good problems to have. You know, where, where is the mother's room going to be or, or the music ministry? How are we going to do it? Whatever. whatever the, it's good because it's all about serving the church, helping the church as it's growing and going forward. So this complaint was against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Uh, in Acts 4.35, it said that they were distributing according to every man's need. But this began to come into question because some of, the, some of the widows felt that they were not getting their share. It wasn't being fair. And they felt it was because the Hebrews seemed to be honored okay, but the Hellenists, and what are the Hellenists? These are not Gentiles. Remember, at this point, the church is only Jewish. They haven't reached the Gentiles until chapter 10, the first Gentile convert. So in the beginning, the church is only Jewish. It's estimated perhaps the first million Christians were Jews until they started reaching out to the Gentiles. We don't know. So the, the Hellenists are not Gentiles, but they're Jewish believers who were living outside of Jerusalem, in some cases outside of Israel, still honoring their Jewish roots, but very influenced by the Greek culture laid out by Alexander the Great, etc. The, the Greek they spoke Greek, they, they were affected by the Greek culture, they lived outside of Israel, but they came for the feasts. And we remember in Acts chapter 2, there were many from all over, remember? 
Um, and uh, many of them got saved, and that's, that's where they came from, these Hellenists. They came to the feast there, and there's a little bit of a, um, uh, a class distinction, if you like, or a little bit of difference on how they viewed each other. I'm a true Hebrew, and I live in Jerusalem, and I speak Hebrew, and I follow, and you are a Hellenist, and you are affected by the Greek culture. And there was a little bit of a difference. And this was being seen, perhaps, that some were not being treated uh, fairly. And, of course, uh, you, they wanted to do what they could to keep the unity. So, in verse 2, the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Um, so the, the apostles realized something had to be done. There needed to be help and organization in being able to take the monies and buy the food or whatever and distribute it fairly and, uh, and properly. And um, they say it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Well, that's for sure. Isn't it how crazy it would be that the apostles, the ones who are doing these signs and wonders, the ones who are bringing the understanding, remember that they're continuing in the apostles' doctrine, that the apostles would be the ones who are taking the money and serving the food and helping in the, with the tables, etc. Um, they realized that they couldn't handle it all and there was a, there was a need to bring um, some help in. If we, if they, they, they would think, if we have to neglect the word of God, then something is not right. Notice it says there, uh, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God. And of course, the word of God being so central in the work of God, particularly here in the early church, uh, the apostles being such valuable characters and uh, valuable gift for the church, for all of the church to grow, these thousands of new believers and the apostles, their time and their energy and their focus was so important and how out of balance that would be if the apostles were serving the tables and handing the money out when people were so hungry to be taught. So they said, listen, we know there's a problem, there needs to be a solution. We can't be the ones who are leaving the word of God to go to the tables. We need some some organization. Um, they knew what their calling was. Their calling was to the word and the preaching of the word, and they didn't want to leave that. They said it's not desirable that we should leave. They didn't say they wouldn't do it. They didn't say, oh, it's beneath us, we are the apostles. They just realized that for the health of the church, it wasn't desirable, not for them, but for the church. It wasn't desirable or fitting uh, if they would be the ones who would be serving on the table. So, it's, they wanted what was best for the church. Um, it's, it's, it's very easy in ministry for, for pastors particularly to get so busy with different parts of church life that they begin to neglect prayer and the word of God in their life. And that's the primary thing that they must be focused on and called to in the church. And the apostles didn't want to be sidetracked. It's the word that brings unity and growth and uh, quality and, uh, and vision and instruction. So verse 3, they said, Therefore, okay, we see the problem. We know we need a solution. Therefore, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. 
Um, so there's going to be some delegation needed. So notice the criteria for choosing these men. First of all, he says, it says, um, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you. First of all, it's not the apostles that go out choosing these men. They call the brethren together and they say, you go and seek out um, men that could be fitted for this, uh, for this ministry. Um, and the, the church, therefore, had some involvement with it. We have that recognition also in our church that it's not always the pastor or the elders or the, or the leadership that make those choices or, or, or not the beginning and the end of it. We have an involvement of the church. The church has a voice in it, and that seems to be what we see here. It says, we will appoint them. Notice that. We will appoint them but you seek them out. So the church is involved, but the leadership definitely making, making a, a, a final decision in it. Brethren, seek them out from among you. These were men who were from the ranks, from the church, from the community. These are men who had been saved, who were part of the fellowship. And it says seven men. Seek out from among you seven men. Uh, it doesn't say women. So it brings the question about women in leadership in the church. It's one of those questions that's often can be a little bit contentious. But um, can women serve in the church? Absolutely. In fact, should they? Absolutely. Do they? Absolutely. We have women who are serving in the Sunday school, in the music ministry, um, greeting at the door, uh, many, many different facets. And, and women, of course, have such an important uh, ministry in the church. In the early church, we read of Dorcas and Lydia and Phoebe and Priscilla. These were key people in the church. Um, but uh, here it says, choose seven men. Also in 1 Timothy 3, where it speaks about the choosing of both deacons and elders, um, Paul says, choose men worthy of respect in 3.8. And then in 3.12, the husband of one wife. So it's hard to contest it. It's hard to get a biblical ground from the scriptures to say that women can be deacons in the church. And churches have different views on that, but we, we have a tendency to have a complete open view of women having a, a, a portion and serving in the church, but the position of a deacon is reserved for men in the church. Um, and it says that they should be, here's some qualifications if there are any listed here. It's one, honest report or good reputation esteemed by all because of their character. That these men should have integrity and reputation that is good. Um, also that they would be uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. And how is that known if someone is filled by, with the Holy Spirit? But um, it's because they speak in tongues. No, just kidding, that's a joke. Sorry, erase that off the tape. It's because they bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 5.22, uh, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, faith, long-suffering, etc. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is evidently seen in them. And that they would have wisdom, God-given wisdom from above. And what is the task that they're going to have? They're going to be helping receive the money and divvy it out and buy the food and distribute it. And you say, well, why do they need these spiritual qualifications for what seems to be a menial task? 
And that's because um, this, this is part of the ministry and the work of God. The, the, having the right heart, the right mind, and the wisdom to, uh, to not let anything be contentious, but to, to minister to people, even through the little things or the practical things, is so important. This is a ministry on behalf of Christ and his church. And that they're handling money, they're dealing with the church finances and with, more importantly, the church people. It needs spiritual integrity and wisdom to do that, as any service or leadership in the church does. And verse 4, And we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. So here the Holy Spirit in this decision is separating two certain ministries that are taking place in the church. Um, where it says that they will serve tables, and here it says the ministry of the word, it's the same Greek word. It's the word to serve. There are some who will serve the food and, and serve out the money or the distribution, and then we will serve the word. Um, so one is ministering spiritual things versus physical or practical things, but it's the same word, serving, serving in the spirit of Christ. Um, We'll serve the word, you serve the tables. And notice the order here. We will be continually given to prayer and the ministry of the word. These two things, and I, I like the order. Prayer, how important it is for a pastor to take time um, uh, for prayer, preparation, praying for the people that he's going to be ministering to, praying for the word, praying for ramas, for God's leading in him. Uh, for him, for the church. Um, the second is not effective without the first. It's not only about teaching and preaching the world. Of course, that's paramount. That's so crucial. But the preparation of prayer, the covering of prayer is so important. Uh, and he says, we will give ourselves continually to it. And um, it certainly is something that, can, that, that demands everything. It's, it's uh, uh, I know from my limited growing experience that, uh, that, that pastoring, it's, it's, it's not a nine-to-five job. It's, it's, it's a very different type of job. There are, you, Paul spoke about carrying the church. He said the care of the church, his carrying in his heart, was so weighty with him. There's a whole spiritual dynamic that goes with it, thinking about people and praying and preparation. And uh, he says, we give ourselves continually to prayer and preparation. It demands that you are saturated with the word of God. You're carrying the thoughts and preparing messages in certain meditation and preparation all the time. Uh, Paul lays this out to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. Basically saying to young Timothy, listen, this is, this is what your ministry should look like. This is how you should conduct yourself in the ministry, Timothy. Verse 16, he says, uh, give yourself wholly to these things. Same, same phrase, we will give ourselves continually. Paul said this to Timothy, give yourself wholly to it. He said to him in, in verse 11 of 1 Timothy 4, these things command and teach. Verse 13, give attendance to three things, reading, exhortation, and doctrine. Reading the text, um, doctrine is explaining the text, exhortation is applying the text. That's a good definition for what we call expositional teaching and preaching. 
You read the text, you explain the text, you apply the text, and you stay with the text. And that's healthy for the, for the church. In verse 14, he says, don't neglect the gift that is in you, Timothy. Verse 15, meditate on these things. Give yourself wholly to them. Same phrase again. Give yourself wholly or completely to them and take heed to yourself and to the teaching. So giving, giving themselves wholly and continually to, to those two things, prayer and the word. Should he also oversee the church and do visitation and do outreach and all of those types of things? Of course. But those two things, prayer and being given to the word, are, are, must be central. Um, and just by way of a little, little testimony, I remember in Budapest, I was full-time teacher and I was pastoring two churches. And, um, you know, I've come to see very quickly being here how... how important it is for a pastor to be full-time. Um, there's only so much you can give if you're, if, you're, if you're working and pastoring a church, let alone pastoring two churches. People used to say to me, how do you do it? And I, I said, I don't know. I have quite a capacity, but I realized I wasn't able to give myself wholly and completely and continually to prayer and the Word. There were certain things that had to be neglected because of that. This is a joy and a privilege and a gift for me to be able to really find, find out what this means in my own life and ministry. Giving myself continually to prayer and the word and preparation is, is, a, is a wonderful thing. It's so important for the church. So verse 5 and 6, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. Isn't that great? They all said, Amen, absolutely. Are you kidding me? If we can free up the apostles as much as we can, we need to do that. If we can use other portions, other men in the church to take care of these things, to free up the word of God, uh, we want to do that. It pleased the whole assembly. And they chose, and it names these people, Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Paramenes, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. He was obviously, uh, he, pro- he was a proselyte. He became a Jew, and now he had become a Christian, the, the last one there. Now, are these the first deacons? Well, it doesn't actually say that they're deacons. Um, it could just be the basic organization of the early church, but it certainly serves as a premise uh, for the deaconship that's laid out in, in the book of Timothy, etc. So, it doesn't actually say they're deacons, but for all intents and purposes, it's, it's a good initiation or model for, for the deacon's role in the church, which is, of course, so, so crucial. And so they chose Stephen and six others. And I want you to notice one thing that might, might jump out at us about these names, and it's that these are Greek names. And the reason that's important is because the problem is the Hellenists, the Grecians, are the ones that feel that they are being treated unfairly. So in the wisdom, we could even say the love and the sensitivity of the church and the apostles was that the men who would be chosen to help address this problem would be Grecians. So there would be no question that they would say, oh, you're doing that because you're a Hebrew. No, I'm not a Hebrew, I'm a Greek. I'm, I'm a Greek, I'm Grecian. I'm a Hebrew, but I'm Grecian like you. So, so it's interesting that that was... Uh, 
chosen. The, Gre- the Grecians' hands would now distribute the funds that would help silence any murmuring that was going on in the church also. And Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. We're going to see more about him in the next chapter. Uh, he's the only one in this list, you'll see, who has something added, personally written about him. It lists out the seven, but next to Stephen it says, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And that's because Luke, in his commentary, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, is, is introducing him to us. He's going to be the next key character, the end of this chapter and into chapter 7. As we know, he's going to become the first martyr of the, of the, uh, of the, early, of the church, of the early church. Um, and they are chosen to do what? These men are chosen to serve tables. And, um, and this is where it starts. It could be young men who, or, or older men or men or people who might say, oh, I want to I pastor the church. Well, it doesn't start pastoring a church. It starts with serving tables. It starts with sometimes people, I remember, would come to me and say, oh, I would like to be used in the church. And uh, Have you taught in the Sunday school yet? No. Okay, go teach in the Sunday school. That's where, it, that's where we begin. We, we're, we're serving in the seemingly menial things in the church which have incredible value. But that's where it starts. That's where God works in your heart and prepares you and raises you up. Serving with the little things in the church. And God sees that. Um, and then, uh, of course, Philip, etc. We're going to see more about Philip. That's, he's in chapter 8, Philip the Evangelist. The next, the other five, Stephen and Philip, are the t- key characters that will be featured. The other five, we haven't heard about them before. We don't hear about them again. Uh, That's not significant, but that's just a a fact. They were obviously amazing men who were chosen out of the thousands of believers in in Jerusalem church. So they laid hands on them. Uh, They had prayed and they laid hands on them. This shows identification of the work, the message, the calling, the ministry. When, When there is the laying on of hands and the prayer, the leaders are saying, We are with you, we support you, we sanction you, we cover you, we identify with you, we authorize you. And those who are having the laying on of hands are saying, we are coming under your authority, we identify with you as leaders. There's this beautiful mutual understanding in that that expression of the laying on of hands. And we see that uh, through the book of Acts and the epistles. And what are the results? And this is wonderful for us to see this. What are the results? And then the word of God spread and the number of disciples grew, uh, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Isn't this amazing? They had this problem. They, They prayerfully dealt with it. These seven men were appointed who were able to take some of the things off the apostles' hands meant the apostles were more free to be teaching and preaching. And, uh, and again, where there's the healthy teaching and preaching, we see disciples multiplying, increasing, people who are learning and who are growing. Um, and even a great company of priests, it mentions there, who are obedient to the faith. Wonderful. And verse uh, 8, that picture's in there, because Stephen is going to find himself before the Sanhedrin, uh, not, not to far away. 
Verse 8, Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So the first part of this chapter shows us the problem, the solution, the seven men, we could call them deacons, the, the, that order of the church. And now it highlights one of those deacons who obviously had a very unique, beautiful, powerful uh, ministry, and that's Stephen. Um, he's the first disciple mentioned who is not an apostle who did wonders and miracles. Notice that. Did wonders and signs. We went through those verses in the book of Acts to show that the miracles and the signs predominantly, almost always, were done at the hands of the apostles. These were particular miracles and signs to validate them as messengers and to validate the message. But there were two people who were not apostles that that were involved in signs and wonders. One is Stephen, the other is Barnabas. But both of them were very closely associated with the apostles. Um, There may have even been apostles present when this was happening. We don't know. But um, Verse uh, 9, And there arose from which is called the synagogue of the freedmen, the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. They were not able to resist the wisdom. Oh, this is, this is wonderful. The, them of Cilicia, by the way, uh, that's where Tarsus is. This is where Saul of Tarsus is from. Uh, perhaps he was there in the disputing. We know he's, he's there for Stephen's message that follows when the, and, and at Stephen's stoning, Saul of Tarsus is present there. But all their... Uh, they, they couldn't stand before the wisdom and the anointing of God. And uh, they, they disputed with him, they reasoned with him. Imagine what, what he's, we can imagine what he's saying from, from his message, from Paul's messages, from Peter's message, taking the Old Testament and opening it to them, showing them that Jesus is the Christ, showing them the prediction and the necessity that Jesus had to go to the cross and now he's risen and Salvation for all men, etc. They're preaching the gospel, but from the Old Testament, showing that Jesus is the Christ. And verse uh, 11, And then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council. Uh, we can go to the next slideshow uh, for, for seven if we could. Um, so what's happening here? Stephen is having an incredibly effective uh, ministry. And uh, there is a little bit of jealousy. They don't like that. They don't like what's being said. So they get certain men to clearly twist the truth or say a lie that, oh, this man, we've heard him speak. What does it say? Verse 11. We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now, certainly there was, there were, we could say that he was showing them the fulfillment of prophecies, the, the, that Christ had, was the end of the law and, and that the temple wasn't the issue, but the church now and these types of things, which to their ears would have sound sounded heretical. They stirred up the people and they bring them before the council. Now remember, this council is the Sanhedrin. This is the third time in the book of Acts we're seeing 
believers brought before the Sanhedrin. The first is Peter and John, remember in Acts 3. The second is Peter and the apostles in Acts 4. And now we're seeing Stephen, the third one, being brought before the Sanhedrin. And verse 15, it's not up there, but verse 15, and all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Imagine that. The, the peace, the, 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 the presence of God being ministering to him in that moment, him just sensing the love and the security of God, being filled with the Spirit, and it was visible. They could see it as if there was an angelic glow from him. That's what it's referring to. And um, we'll jump to chapter 7 now because chapter 6 is one of the shortest chapters. Chapter 7 is one of the longest. So we're just going to overlap a little bit, go into to chapter 7. Uh, here we see Stephen at the end of chapter 6 going all through chapter 7. He's going to be before the Sanhedrin. And most of this chapter is the message of Stephen. They they say to him, okay, are these charges true? And Stephen begins to speak. And the whole of the chapter really is his message, which is an incredible study for us. His message is unbelievable. And he leads them through Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and then he relates it directly to the Sanhedrin. They can't hear it. They run upon him. They drag him out of the city, and he becomes the first martyr. So it starts with the high priest said, are these things so, so we need to know the context. We need to know the end of chapter 6. They bring these charges against him. Um, remember, these charges are, uh, you brought words against this holy place, the temple and the law. We have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Imagine, you're, a, you're a, an Orthodox Jew. You're a, one of the Sanhedrin. And the temple is the center of everything. The law is the center of everything. Who Moses is, is so central to your faith. And then you hear that he said that Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to tear down the temple. He's going to change the ways of Moses. These are heavy accusations. So the high priest at the council, and remember, Here's the council. They would meet in the, in the circle. It was very intimidating. Peter and the apostles have already been there. And uh, the high priest starts out with that question, are these things so? And this begins Stephen's uh, amazing message. Let's look at it together. He said, brethren and fathers, listen, I want you to notice this word, uh, fathers. It's mentioned 16 times in Stephen's message, fathers, particularly when he refers back to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And he is talking to the Sanhedrin, and he's constantly bringing them through this little history lesson, which many of the messages in in the books of Acts, etc., they take, go through the history to come to Christ. And he does that, and he looks back to our forefathers, but he highlights certain things, and then says, and and then pulls the, you know, Brings the punchline. So, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country from your relatives and come to a land which I will show you. Remember, uh, this is Genesis chapter 12, end of 11 and 12, where Abraham's initial calling. This is the root of, of, of the Jewish people. Abraham is the father 
And he's the father, the, the, the original father that received the, the unconditional covenant. So he starts with Abraham, the father of the faith. Um, he's going to so anger them through his message. As the message builds, it's like a, a pot on the, on the flame. It's going to gradually just boil over. And all the way through the message, it's layer upon layer. They're just getting, until in the end, it just explodes. And this ordered Sanhedrin becomes like an angry mob. And they lose control because the things that he is saying are so uh, accusational. He's the one on trial, but in the end, just like Peter did, he flips it right back on them with the most, uh, with words that cut right to their heart. Uh, and remember, we, we read uh, in, in, Acts, uh, in Acts chapter 6, when he was disputing Stephen, they could not resist his wisdom, remember? He was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And this was who was standing before the Sanhedrin. So, and it's interesting, he starts with speaking of the, of the God of glory, and it ends with him looking at, at the God of glory in heaven. And verse, uh, verse 4. And then he, Abraham, came out of the land of Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. So he begins with a recap and a reflection on their treasured history. And then remember, the Jews don't only live in the present, but very much in the past. Their history is very close to them. Their forefathers and is very important to them, always considering their fathers. And verse 5, And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge. And of course, this is speaking about when they were in Egypt and God would bring them out, judging Pharaoh. And after they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob and Jacob begat the 12 patriarchs or the 12 fathers. So now he's focused their attention and, and follow this together. It's wonderful to see this. He focuses their attention on, the, on their patriarchal history. The fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the, the, the fathers of the 12 tribes. And now he's going to show them a few stains on their history. He's going to show them, these are our fathers, but guess what? They made some serious error, some serious mistakes. Until this moment, they're enjoying, oh, he's rehearsing our history and in their hearts there's nothing to disagree with. And then he says, verse 9, and the patriarchs, our fathers, became envious and sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. And we know, of course, that Joseph is a, the story of Joseph is a beautiful picture of Christ who was rejected, sold into slavery and, and undeserved suffering and finally exalted. And, and 
Stephen is leaning into this a little bit, showing how that Joseph was not understood by his brothers. They did not recognize who he was. In the same way that Joseph had visions of of how how the, the she's would bow down to him and those visions and dreams. And they said, oh, will you rule over us? And what did they do? They rejected him. They threw him down a pit. And he is going to use that backdrop of history to bring them right to what they have done in that generation with Christ, how they did not recognize him either and rejected him. He hasn't said it yet, but they're going to begin to realize where he's going with this. Um, Verse 10. And they delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence... uh, God delivered him out of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. So here he's subtly making reference to the fact that the brothers, our fathers, the fathers of our faith, the the heads of the tribes. We are the Jewish people. We are talking about Jacob's sons. They, they missed the target. They, they rejected uh, Joseph. And Joseph, of course, being the character in the story, who was honored. So through Joseph, he shows rejection, humiliation, suffering, and, and exaltation. Verse 11, he goes on to say, Now a famine and great trouble came over the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. So again, he's making this point that the brothers did not know him. The one that they rejected, and note this, the one that they rejected became the one who would preserve their life, who would provide for them. And this is what Stephen masterfully, by the Holy Spirit, is bringing out. Listen, our fathers, who we honor so much, they, in their day, they missed the point also with Joseph. They rejected him. But God honored him. God raised him up to be the one who would provide for them and spare them and, and um, lead, you know, rule over them, but with grace. Uh, even Joseph had said, remember, God had sent him to preserve life at the end of Genesis. Beautiful parallel, parallel of uh, Joseph and Christ. Verse 15, so Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to, oh, that's as far as I got, yeah. They were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. So Abraham and the patriarchs had not yet seen the promised land. All Abraham saw, of course, was that little parcel of ground that he purchased for Sarah's burial, etc. One more verse. Couple more verses. Verse so I don't have it on the slide, but listen carefully. Verse seventeen. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, until another king arose who did not know Joseph. 
This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them cast out their babies so they might not live, etc. Right? So he's gone through the story of Joseph. He's made the point that our fathers, Jacob's sons, the heads of the 12 tribes, they rejected him, the one who became the provider for them. And now he leads them up to, after the nation has grown, when they come out of Egypt under the hand of Moses, And Moses is going to be the next example in his message of one who was rejected. Because if you remember the story, when Moses had come to to years, he was 40 years old, in fact. He'd been raised in the house of Pharaoh. When he was 40 years old, he came out to look at his brethren who were were, um, slaves and building, and he saw one of his brothers being mistreated, and he smites the Egyptian, and he kills him, buries him in the sand. And the next day he goes out and he sees two of his brethren quarreling and he says, why are you you fighting your brothers? And and this is the answer. Are you going to rule over us? Who made you to rule over us? Are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian yesterday? And they cast him out. They did not accept him. They rejected him. It actually says here in Acts 7, we'll look at it next week. It says that Moses, note these words, supposing that they knew he was the deliverer. This is the emphasis Stephen lays. Moses, assuming that they knew that God was going to deliver them by his hand, um, was rejected by them. When he went out, he realized, okay, we often think that Moses was called and told when he was 80 years old at the burning bush, but Stephen gives us this insight that when he was 40 years old, before he fled from Pharaoh, When he slayed the Egyptian, he already knew that he was going to be the deliverer. But what did the people do? Did they say, oh, yes, you're going to deliver us? No. They rejected him. So Stephen uses Moses as his second example, building his message. Look at our fathers, how they treated Joseph. Look Look at how our fathers, how they rejected Moses initially to be the one to lead them out of Egypt. And he's going to continue his message and bring them right to the rejection of Christ in the most potent and powerful way. So we'll end there today because we wanted to overlap because there's a lot of material to cover in chapter 7, which we'll look at not next week because there's no Bible class next week uh, because we have school holiday and things like that. We'll pick it up in, uh, in two weeks, okay? Any questions on anything that we uh, covered tonight or from the book of Acts? Well, um, yeah, I mean, they're all disciples. I mean, a, dis- um, yeah, he was, a disciple means a learner. A disciple, all, all, all the Christians, you could say, are disciples. As long as they're hearing and growing and learning, we're all disciples. Like We're disciples because we're followers and learners of Christ. Um, so you could say you have a, in, in, in this uh, in the book of Acts, you could say, well, you've got the Christians, you've got the disciples, because maybe not all Christians are disciples in the sense that they continue and learn. So he was a Christian, he was a disciple, he was also a deacon, and he, and, uh, you know, he also did signs and wonders. And then you had the, the apostles, yeah. You could say loosely, because we, we don't believe that the, the apostles, the office of an apostle is continuing for today. We believe that after the first century, the apostles died out and there were no replacements. 
Um, although there are some churches today who teach that certain men today are apostles and they have gifts and miracles, we're not in that in that camp. But um, we would say that the leadership of the church seen here with the early church was replaced by the gifts of the pastor teacher, um, but definitely not on a on a parallel on a, on a par rather that the the pastor teacher doesn't doesn't have any um, excelling. Uh, Say it again. Is this part of the church? Is, is, is the analogy to the, the 30 years that the Jews spent before they came to the promised land? You mean this time of the church age now? Uh, mm, well, l- loosely, you could say. Yeah. What I mean by that is that is that because um, if you think there are two bodies of water that the Jews had to cross from Egypt to the Promised Land. There was the Red Sea and there was the Jordan. And in the typical history, we could say that the Red Sea is a picture of our salvation, like their physical salvation, and our, it's a picture of our spiritual salvation, the work that only... And, and baptism, but not the water baptism, but the true spiritual baptism that when we were baptized into Christ. So it's a picture of the spiritual baptism that when we were saved... And then, between the Red Sea and the Jordan, there can be a time of wandering and unbelief, right? Well, well, let me finish. So, so um, there are some who believe that the Christian life or the church age, from now to heaven, is our wandering through the wilderness. And when we go through the Jordan, that's our physical death, and the promised land is heaven. And there are hymns that... that say, oh, when I go through Jordan, I'm going to come into glory and all of that, which is fine to sing those hymns. But really the typical history doesn't speak of that. It's the, going through the Jordan is not my physical death, but it's, my, it's, my, it's the death to the old man, which means that I, am, I, I take up my cross, I die to myself, and I enter into the spirit-filled life. So the promised land is not one day I'm going to be in heaven, but it's in this life, I, I live by faith, I, I embrace the promises, I live a spirit-filled life, because in the promised land there are enemies that are going to be overcome. In heaven there's no enemies, so the, the analogy doesn't fit. It, it, it's, it's true that when you're baptized, that's when you receive the Holy Spirit. No, no. Um, when you're water baptized, you mean? Yeah. yeah. So... In Ephesians 4.4, 4, it's such a good question and important uh, teaching. In Ephesians 4.4, 4, it says there is one baptism. So the question is, well, what is that baptism? Is it the water baptism or what is it referring to? And 1 Corinthians 12.11, or is it 13? Maybe it's 13. It says that, that by the Spirit, we were baptized into Christ. That's the baptism. The baptism is the moment someone puts their faith in Christ, the Bible says they, are, they, are, they, are, they were in Adam and in that moment they are now in Christ. They were baptized into Christ, into his body and positionally in Christ. We're unified with him. That's what in Christ means, that we were made one with him and never to be separated, right? So that's the baptism we put in Christ. The water baptism that follows is only, it's just an outward um, 
symbolic recognition of the, of the true baptism that's already happened. So there are some misconceptions of Christianity, particularly in the Chinese church I used to pastor. They all used to think when I really become a Christian is when I get water baptized, and we have to teach it again and again and again. No, you don't become a Christian when you're water baptized. You don't, you're not filled with the Holy Spirit when you're baptized. That happens when you, when you first become a Christian, and the water baptism is you just saying to the, to the Christians that are watching and before the angels, I know that I'm already a Christian, I'm in Christ, I'm saved, and now is my public testimony of that. It's just symbolic. Yeah. It's symbolic in the same way that we do communion. That, 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 we could say this, that the communion is symbolic of the Red Sea. Communion is symbolic of the fact that Christ died for me. The work of salvation. And baptism is symbolic of the River Jordan. It's symbolic of the fact that, uh, that, um, that one is that Christ died for me and the other is that I die with Christ. So, I, what's the uh, representation of the 40 years then? Is that an oracle? The f- yeah, in, in my opinion, and you might hear different, different applications of it, but my opinion is that the 40 years represents the potential wandering, carnal unbelief that any of us can live in any day. But we're only one decision, one Jordan away from experiencing the promised land. It's, it's like a daily thing. The, 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 the wilderness experience from a Christ, for a Christian is Romans chapter 7. It's living in unbelief. It's living in the flesh. And, and, and we understand that the cross, applying the cross, Jesus said, you have to, I took up my cross, now you take up your cross. The cross is the point of faith where I say, I come to God and I acknowledge that, that you know, I, I, he is in me and he is with me and I look at him by faith and I cross over. I cross over from the wilderness through the Jordan to the promised land. It's a daily, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Paul said, I die daily. And what he meant by that is that he, he takes up his cross every day and, and we must also. It means, here's, here's the cross, and here am I, and every morning I wake up, just like Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And, and in that, it's like a daily, oh, I'm crucified with Christ. And I go through the cross with an acknowledgement that I died with him, and he gave me a new life. And I say, Lord, fill me with your spirit for today, quicken me. And I go from the wilderness to the promised land. And it's, it's not a one-time act. It's a, it's a, it must be a daily, maybe many times a day. There are some things that happen to us that are a one-time thing. When I got saved, I was uh, indwelt with the Holy Spirit. I was baptized into Christ. I was sealed by this Holy Spirit. I was regenerated. I was gifted, etc. All of those things, they only happen one time. But the feeling of the Holy Spirit or the Spirit-filled life, that can happen repeatedly in a believer's life. So for me, in the application, the 40-year the, the wandering, is, 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 um, it, it can be symbolic of, of a believer who's not living in faith. He's just living a natural life in unbelief. But it's not the time period, but, it, or, or, but it, yeah, it's just it's just the fact that uh, um, 
Because when you look at Israel in the wilderness, you see the flesh. They're complaining, they're unbelieving, they want to go back to Egypt. You don't get a sense of possessing and victory and living in the promises. So I think that, that, that that's the picture. One shows that the carnal natural life that a Christian can live, and the other one shows where they're possessing under Joshua, they're getting victory in their life. And the difference between the two is the Jordan which is the cross life that, that every believer uh, you know, must embrace. Ma- Ma- Matthew. Yeah. You see, when Stephen was preaching, yeah. and he was talking with such conviction, eloquence, and truth, yeah, yeah. That the, the people were, were offended, and they, they, they conspired to yeah. him. Yeah. Well, in in Acts chapter six, he's disputing with other with other uh, Hellenistic Jews who could not. Uh, how does it say it? They couldn't. Um, they couldn't stand up against his wisdom and right. But then in Acts chapter 7, when he's preaching, it's before the Sanhedrin. It's before that council of 70. Um, and it appears that Saul of Tarsus is, is, uh, is present there. Yeah. And, and one, one of the punches in that, in that uh, sermon is that he's, I think it's verse 56 or somewhere, he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Just as your fathers resisted the Holy Spirit, you resist the Holy Spirit. And what's interesting about that is, is Saul of Tarsus was there when he said that and obviously was one of those who was resisting the Holy Spirit, which is when, when it gets to Acts chapter 9 and Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus and says, it's hard for you to kick against the goats, for you to kick against the bricks. In other words, there was a real wrestling going on in Paul's heart and, and he was resisting the Spirit and Jesus said, you're kicking against it and it's hard for you. And that's, that's when he became a believer, you know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we can talk about that more if, if we need to. It's a great theme, but uh, yeah. Uh, Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And the, and the deny himself there is not talking so much of, of, denying, of, of self-denial, but it's talking about denying yourself. It's different. It's not self-denial, but it's denying your self-life, and that's, that's at the cross. In other words, you, 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 you have a recognition in your heart that I will deny my self-life. I'm not going to live this in the flesh, but I come to the cross I take up my cross and I follow you. And um, uh, in Luke 9.23, which is the same verse, he says, if any man come after me, take up his cross, and it adds the word daily, daily, daily. It's a, it's a heart process of faith. The symbolism helps us, taking up the cross, etc. It helps us, but the, the, the principle is, in my heart, I come to God and recognize, I, I, cannot, I cannot live this by my own strength, by my flesh. I cannot and I, and I should not try. So I come to you through the cross and I say, God, you quicken me. You enable me. You fill me. 
And, and that's the point that we believe as Christians that he, he does just that. He fills us and he quickens us. I don't have to be subjective about it and second guess it. That I think of it this way. By faith I say, Lord, I search my heart, check my heart, and then fill me with your spirit. And then I walk on believing that I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. It's as simple as that. Um, there's one last thought about that. Oh, yeah. Right, think of it this way. Every verse, we often think as New Testament believers, we don't live under the commandments, under the law, and we don't. But there are hundreds and hundreds of commandments in the New Testament. We are commanded, they're imperative mood. We are commanded to forgive, to love. We're commanded to do it. So, but we can't do it. That's the irony. We can't do it. Like Jesus said, you know, love one another, but we can't do it. The premise of that is I cannot love someone unconditionally. And this is... Yeah, yeah, every day and perhaps several times during the day, halfway through the day, I, I sense I've lost my joy or something and I, I, need, I need to find that orientation again. So, you know, a lot of Christianity, and I don't want to take up our time, but a lot of Christians... And sadly, a lot of churches teach with this leaning that Christians, we have to live up to something. And there's a certain, they teach Christianity as a lifestyle. And if I'm a Christian, I should be living this way. And they are missing, they are missing the gospel when they do that. Uh, because you can be preaching, you can be teaching and preaching the New Testament but subtly in the message, you are laying an expectation on the people that they live up to the message. And it's not about living up to anything. It's about Christ living in us. It's very different. It's, one is morality and the other is spirituality. And a lot of churches are moral where they are living according to the Scripture as best as they can, but it, it's not necessarily spiritual. Now, only God knows. The point being this. Take an example. Ephesians 4.32 says... Be kind, be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, right? So a Christian could say, okay, I'm, this, that's what it says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be kind. Okay, Lord, from now on, I'm going to be kind. New Year's resolution, whatever. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be tender-hearted, and I'm going to forgive one another. Okay, that's it. I've got it. Thank you. And I'm going to be kind, be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, right? And you try and live in the energy of the flesh, up to that truth. Whereas the, the right response to that verse should be, oh Lord, I cannot do that. I cannot be kind. I cannot be tender-hearted. I cannot forgive. But Lord, you, you help me. You do that. And, and as you, with that attitude, you are going through the cross and you are dying to your self-life and you are, you are finding Christ's life in you. And you know what happens? It's a miracle. You find out you are kind and you are tender-hearted and you forgive people, but it's not, it's not you uh, primarily. It's Christ in you. So it's, it's a wonderful discovery in the Christian life. Yeah. I know that other people aren't seeing to and they're unless they're distracted. They think 
Yeah, but it's not. Yeah, it's not even. It's not because you said it's not. I think he says not only being a good person, but just to correct, it's not. It's not anything to do with being a good person. Like sometimes I remember we would talk, we'd evangelize on the street, and sometimes we'd say to people, "You know, you you could never be good enough to get to heaven." And I remember. God, God, check my heart on that and say, "What do you mean, good enough? You can never be good enough." He said, "It's not. You can. No, you, it's not about being good at all." The Bible says, in fact, there is none good, not one. The whole point is we are completely bankrupt, and there's nothing we can do to earn anything. So it's all by grace. It's all by grace. Yeah, and that you just echoing that is by grace is is such a key revelation really in a believer's life to and we progressive you know the scales fall off as we go forward but see ya see ya yeah yeah, exactly. The point is, uh, a similar analogy would be uh, if you got the Grand Canyon and you got to jump the Grand Canyon, it doesn't matter if you're an Olympic long jumper or a guy on crutches. It's, just, it's an impossibility. Every man is in the same place that we just can't. All right, amen.